We've been looking at fearless. The, the subject fearless, beating impossible challenges is, is our theme today. And, and look, at what the, look at what the key verse is one more time, if, if you remember. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Remember on Easter, we started this whole thing. We said we can be fearless because Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen. Oh, you're getting lazy on me. He is risen. You can't forget this because we are fearless because he beat death. We can be fearless because Christ has said we can make a difference in life. You can make a difference. You think, oh, I don't make a difference at all. You can make a huge difference in life. We can be fearless because God has said you may not have everything you want, but you will have enough. God said you can be fearless because I'm going to empower you and enable you in those times in life to have enough. We can be fearless last week we saw because we're forgiven. The failure doesn't hold its power over us. We are forgiven. And today, beating impossible challenges. When was the last time you witnessed someone achieve the impossible? When's the last time you saw somebody really do something impossible? There's a new television show out. It's called Minute to Win It. Anybody seen that Minute to Win It? They have all kinds of challenges. They have one with three golf balls. I've got three golf balls up here, three regular golf balls. And what they do is they give you a minute. It's one of, I guess, 30 different challenges. They, give, they call it the caddy stack. And you take three golf balls and you just stack them one on top of the other. There's no glue. There's no tape. There's nothing. I'm just going to show you how quickly. Okay, we'll be here all day. <clears throat> I have done it. It's not impossible, but it's not going to happen this morning. In, third, in, in 60 seconds. A minute to win it is difficult, but it's not impossible. They have all kinds of challenges that are included in that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about the difficult. We're talking about the impossible. We're talking about when the blind are given sight. We're talking about when someone who has been lying lame, they, their mus- muscles have atrophied. They have been paralyzed for years from the waist down or even from the neck down we see in the New Testament. And all of a sudden Jesus comes by and he doesn't just say, twitch that leg, can you feel this? He says, get up, walk, take your mat and walk home. That's impossible. We're talking about Jesus coming to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus who has been dead for four days and they said, he says, open the tomb and they say, Lord, don't you understand? After four days, this guy's going to be rank. This is not going to smell good. And he says, open it anyway. And he's bound hand and foot, and he walks out of the tomb after he's been dead for four days. We're talking about the impossible. And the, the story we're going to see today, you notice that there's a little something up here on the platform. It's a kayak. It's a boat. How about some night seeing a guy walking on water, not just any water, the Sea of Galilee, seven and a half miles wide at where he was walking across, seven and a half miles of walking on water, not any night, but on a night when it was stormy. So stormy that the disciples have been, they've been at the oars for six hours trying to get across this seven and a half miles, and they haven't, they haven't made it that far. And the Lord comes walking on the water. We can be fearless because God says we can beat impossible challenges. And look at what Jesus says when he comes to them. In Matthew chapter 14, look at what it says. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. And let me give you the George and I translation. Be fearless. It's not just don't be afraid. Be fearless. I want to help you beat the impossible challenges. Here's where we're going this morning. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. What is your storm? 
What is a storm in your life right now that you're facing? Just like the disciples were paddling for all their worth in the storm. What's your storm, number one? Number two, what's your boat? What is it that you're afraid to get out of? And this is where we're headed. Are you in the boat? Are you fearlessly walking on water? Are you still in the boat? Or are you walking on water? Two things that we're going to look at. Number one, who empowers me to achieve the impossible? If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 14. Matthew 14, this is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament, but we're going to look at it from just a little different uh, perspective today. Matthew 14, verses 22 through 27. Jesus says, or the, the Bible says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And I think that's interesting because they've just had the 5,000 fed. They've just had this big, huge hurrah. They've just had seen Jesus do the impossible, take five loaves and two fishes and feed all these people. And he says, I'm going to dismiss the crowd. You guys go ahead and go back. I'll meet you there. Nobody said, hey, how are you going to get there? It's a long way around the Sea of Galilee, across the sea. The reason that they took the boat, seven and a half miles, is a lot faster than going around the edge of the lake. But look at verse 23. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Again, I need to stop. The, the Jews had, they, they would split the night up into three sections, the, the Greeks, the Romans, they split it up into four. However you split it up, this was at least six hours after dusk, after sunset, it's six hours into it. Probably around 3 o'clock in the morning. These guys have been rowing all night long. Wow. that talking about a marathon. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I don't be afraid. I want to stop there for a moment. Who empowers me to achieve the impossible? Well, it's an easy answer here. Jesus Christ does. But it's in the storm that we encounter Jesus. It is in the midst of that storm that we, that we see Jesus for the first time. And many times it's easy to kind of gloss over to miss who he is. And that's what happened to the disciples. They're not expecting to see Jesus walking on the water. You're not expecting to see Jesus in the storm either. And there are a lot of nuances here in this story. We could spend weeks on this. But, but God wants to show them something in their life. So what, is he, what does it say? It says, He made them get into the boat and go across the Sea of Galilee. I've been to the Sea of Galilee. I can picture this in my mind when I started looking through this section. Uh, it was a year ago, January, that I went to Israel. By the way, how many of you would like to go to Israel sometime? Raise your hand. Praise the Lord. Let's get a trip next year. Let's go in 2011. How many of you would like to go if we'd go in 2011? Praise the Lord. That's awesome. We got a trip. I like it. But I stood, up, stood on the mountain where Jesus went to pray. There's a mountain there that it's just about got to be the place where Jesus went to pray. And you can oversee the Sea of Galilee. It's 13 miles from the, north, from the north to the south. It's seven and a half miles wide. And when we were there in January, it was the winter when the storms came. And one day we were there and the wind howled. We're standing on the edge of the rock and we're holding on because we're afraid we're going to be swept into the Sea of Galilee. From the Golan Heights, the winds just come howling into the sea, the Sea of Galilee. And by the way, sometimes it's not just for an hour or two. They've had storms two, three, four days. They've actually had storms 14 days where the wind is 40 to 60 miles an hour on a, on a continual basis for day after day after day. 
And the disciples realized they were in trouble. And Jesus knew what would happen. I mean, Jesus knew all things. So Jesus says, get into the boat and start across the lake. And at the same time, I'm thinking, if he knew that, why didn't he say, hey, guys, don't go out there. There's a storm brewing. There's a storm coming. Let's wait and do this another way. Why don't you stay with me? We'll all go pray. But that's not the point. See, Jesus knew that he was going to do something here. And we don't expect for Jesus to send us into the storm, do we? We don't expect that. We expect to encounter Jesus somewhere else. We expect to encounter Jesus in a Sunday school when we're all sitting around and we're, we're debating the theological points. We expect to, to encounter Jesus when we're having this nice, quiet devotion some morning. We expect to encounter Jesus by coming on Sunday morning and, and worshiping. And I hope you encounter Jesus in all of those places. But that's not what the Lord says. Sometimes he says, the place where you'll encounter me and really find out about me is in the storm. So he sends them. What's your storm? What is your storm? Sometimes God sends the storm in the form of a pink slip from work. Sometimes it's a, a recession that you think if these crazy politicians would just leave it alone, it would probably get fixed. What's your storm? Maybe it's a foreclosure on your house. What's your storm? Maybe it's cancer. It's, it's, it's brittle bones. Maybe it's you know, that you, you can't have a baby. Maybe that you've got too many babies. What's your storm? About two years ago, our life was clicking along and our kids were having children and everything was going and being a grandfather is a great thing. And all of a sudden, our daughter calls and says, the baby's born and they say that he has Down syndrome. And it was a storm. It was something unexpected. It was something that whipped the winds around us and the waves around us. And all of a sudden, our calm, peaceful existence began to, dis to disintegrate. And, it, and it's a storm that we're in. And God says, I never said you wouldn't have storms. In fact, Max Lucado says it this way, storms in life are not an option. Fear in the midst of the storm is. Do you get that? Storms are not an option. You're going to have storms. I may not have mentioned your storm, but you have either had a storm or you will have a storm. And when you're in the storm of your life, the Lord says, I'm there. I'll be with you. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We're in Daniel in, in Sunday evening. I hope you're with us in the study. We're going to look at Daniel 2 tonight. But in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they have a unique situation. This king comes and he says, I'm going to build this 90-foot tall statue. And what, here's the only thing I want you to do when the, the trumpets sound, when the music starts, I want you to bow down and worship me. I want to worship the statue, but the statue is a statue of me. I really want you to worship me. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they wouldn't do it. Now, I think a lot of Christians, when the music started, they would have said, oh, a dime there on the ground. Let me get that dime. Oh, my shoe's untied. Let me just... And they would have bowed down. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're officials in the king's court. They, along with Daniel, they have stood strong. And when everybody else bows down, they, I think they got on their tiptoes. They're standing up and they're saying, we're not going to bow down. And the king comes to them and he says, listen, you don't get it. Everybody in my kingdom bows to me. And they say, oh, king... We hope you live forever. But you need to understand something. The God we serve is able to keep us from this fiery furnace. He says, if you don't bow down, we're going to put you in the fiery furnace. And they said, we understand that, but our, our God can keep us from the fiery furnace. But even if he does not, we will not bow down and worship you. 
Now, I really think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thinking the king's going to think, whoo, this king, you know, this God, I, I guess their God's pretty powerful. I think they thought that somehow the fire was going to go out. God was going to use a big breath and blow the furnace out. Or maybe it was going to rain and they couldn't get the fire soaked enough. But instead they stoked the first furnace hotter and hotter and hotter. And they take them and, and they bind them and they throw them in there. And, and it burns off the ropes, but it doesn't burn their clothes. And, and the people who throw them in, they're killed by the heat. The heat is so extreme that, that the very ones who take them to the furnace are killed. And look at what it says in Daniel 3. He said, look, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, says, look, I see four men walking around in the fire. Not three, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's four. I see four men walking around the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego encountered Jesus, I think, a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus Christ in the fire. Jesus walks up to them. They think he's a ghost, and he says, wait a second, don't be afraid. Wait, wait a second, calm down, take courage. And then he says, actually, just two words in Greek, ego, I, me, I am. It, we translated it as I because we, we don't have a phrase like this. He doesn't say, I am Jesus, I am great, I am walking on water, I am the Lion of Judah. He just says, I am. And he does that on purpose. Because that is a designation of God. When Moses says to God in the Old Testament in, in Exodus, Hey, listen, I'm going to go in front of Pharaoh, and you want me to take all these Israelites out of Egypt. Who should I say sent me? What name should I use? I'm going to be a name dropper here. What name should I use? And, and if you looked at the Greek translation of the Old Testament, guess what it says? Ego, I me, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And when you're in the midst of the storm and you encounter God, you won't see him as a good teacher. You won't see him as a great person. You will see him as God incarnate. The God who can do all things. Who can do the impossible. In John 8, 58, Jesus used the words again. And the Jews heard it and they said, this is blasphemy. Only God claims to be the I am. How is that empowering? You know, it says in the storm we encounter Jesus, and this is, this is how he empowers us. How is that empowering? I've been to the ICU several times in the last couple weeks to see people, and when I go to the hospital room, many times all they want to hear is when you get there, they, you come and you put your hand in their hand, and this is what you say, I'm here. I'm here. It's the comfort, it's the strength, it's knowing that somebody's there. I can't do anything for them in ICU. But it's just the comfort of having someone that they know is praying for them, that loves them. Philippians 4, 5 says, the Lord is near. John 14, 20 says, I'm going to leave, Jesus says, so the Holy Spirit can come and not only be the comforter, but he's going to reside, he's going to indwell you. It's, a storm. it's in the storm that we encounter Jesus. Number two, it's in the storm that we discover what Jesus can do. It's not just that we encounter him, it's when we see what he can do. In Mark 6, 48, the parallel passage, if you looked at Mark, uh, it, it's the same story, but it adds a little detail because it says that he was about to pass by them. He was about to pass by them. Not only was he, they thought he was a ghost, but it looked like he was just going to walk on by the boat. 
And that seems like such a strange thing. Wait a second, they've been straining at the oars for six hours. And they're saying, wait a second, hey, whoa, 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 if you're a ghost or not, could you come take an oar for a while? We're exhausted. That's what we think, but we don't get it. Uh, a Bible scholar by the name of David Garland is the one that finally opened my eyes to this, the NIV commentary. Because he asked the question, wasn't Jesus going to help? And then he began to look up this word again, the pass by in the Greek, parakomai. Parakomai, he was going to pass by. And he looked again in the Greek, uh, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament and he saw there were two places where that same Greek word is used, parakomai. And he began to think maybe the disciples would have known that because they used the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And when he said, I'm going to parakomai, they would have thought of two things. Number one, Moses, the same Moses that says, who should I say sent me? Moses says, Lord, I can't take these two million people anymore. I have had it up to here. I, I need some help. Could you reveal who you are? Because if I'm going to do this job, I need to know for sure how much power you have. Could you just show me for a minute who you are? And the Lord says, you don't get it, Moses. You disintegrate. You can't handle me. He says, Lord, I just need to know. He says, I'm going to put you in in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put you in a cave. And this is what it says in Exodus 33, 19. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to parakomai, to pass by. It's literally what it says. I will pass, allow all my goodness to parakomai. I will proclaim my name, the all-powerful one, the Lord Jehovah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to parakomai. I'm going to pass by so you'll know how much power I have. By the way, the same thing happens in 1 Kings 19. Elijah comes and he says, Lord, just kill me. I've done all that you wanted me to do. I went up there and I prayed and the fire fell and it destroyed the altar and I killed the, 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 all of the false prophets and now Ahab and, and, and all of the people want me dead. It's, it's just, just take my life. Just kill me. I'm the last one left in Israel and you'll be done. The Lord says, no, you're not. You're not the only one. I've got thousands that have not bowed their knees to Baal. Do you not understand? But Elijah, I I want to do something. I want you to go to the cleft of the rock. And in 1 Kings 19, 11 and 12, he says, Stand on the mountain, for the Lord is going to parakomai. He's going to pass by. And it says there's an earthquake, and there's the wind, and there's all these other things. And he finally comes as a whisper. But it's a whisper of the power, the majesty, who God is. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 107, or I think maybe it's up here, Psalm 107. Do we have it? Look at what it says. Psalm 107, 28 through 30 says, Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. They're in, they're in the storm. And He brought them out of their distress. He stilled the storm to a whisper. The waves of the sea were hushed. They were glad when it grew calm. And He guided them to their desired haven. The disciples got to see this. And if you go back to Matthew, verse 32, it says, When they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you're the Son of God. Only the Son of God could do what you just did. Not just walk on the water, but everything. Only the Son of God. They They didn't just encounter Jesus Christ. They saw the power of Jesus Christ. And it's only in the storm that we're going to see the power of God. He finally recognized who Jesus is. You say, well, I'm not sure. I mentioned before that our storm came up a couple of years ago when our grandson, Lincoln, was born Down syndrome. 
I knew that my daughter had made a good selection with her husband. I mean, he wasn't the guy that I envisioned for her. I mean, he had a nice ponytail, nice red hair. When he took his hair out of the ponytail, he looked like Carrot Top. I mean, this is not what I envisioned for my daughter to marry. Not who I envisioned my daughter to marry. He loves the Lord and he's... I know, it just... You know, he's way out there in some ways. He just... He, he doesn't fit right sometimes. But in the storm... He said, Liz, you go ahead and finish your college education because it's important. And even though the storm's here, you're going to finish. And she did. And he said, Liz, you go ahead and start your career. And I'll stay home during the day. And I'll limit the hours that I work. And I'll work as a server at night because Lincoln's more important than my career. In the storm, I saw my son-in-law in a new way. And I saw how God had empowered him to be an incredible father to that little boy. To push him farther than we ever thought he could go in this, even in the first two years. To watch him develop in ways that we never thought that he would develop. It's in the storm we discover what Jesus can do. It's in the storm we discover what God can do through us. And that empowers us to achieve the impossible. Here's the second part. What enables me to achieve? It's not just empowering, but what enables me. Go back to Matthew chapter 14. Look at verse 28. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied. What? Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come. One word. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and he began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You, a little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. What enables me to achieve the impossible? Number one, set your mind. Peter had to come to an intellectual assent, an intellectual decision in his mind. He had to set his mind. He started out with, if it's you. He's already said, ego I me, I am. Peter knew who Jesus was. He'd already seen so much of what Jesus could do. He had just seen Jesus take that five loaves two, and, and two fish and feed all of those people. He knew what Jesus could do. But he had to wrap his mind. He's been six hours into the rowing at least. And his, and his hands are bloodied and blistered. And, and, and there's sweat pouring off of him. And the storm's raging. And he's not sure he's going to make it to the other side. And he says, if. And sometimes we have a mental assent that we need to give to who Jesus Christ is. In Mark chapter 9 verse 23, a demon-possessed man is brought to the disciples and the disciples tried to throw the demon out and the demon wouldn't come out and they bring him to Jesus. And the man comes and he says, listen, I've tried everything. I even brought this man to you, the disciples. And they couldn't do anything. If there's anything you can do, if you can do anything, and Jesus says, if, everything is possible for him who believes. And the boy's father says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Overcome my unbelief. Kierkegaard at one time said that we all have to take a leap of faith. And it's not a leap of faith in the sense that we have to 
to just give up on reason, ignore evidence, embrace fantasy. That's not what we're talking about. But Kierkegaard shows us that it's a decision that's built on facts known already. And God says, I want you to make a mental decision based on what you've already seen that I could do, what you've already known, what you've already heard. Or as Colossians 3, 2 says, set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. Set your mind. You have to make this mental ascent. How do I reset my mind? Well, Colossians 3 goes on in verse 16. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let it dwell in you richly. What does that mean? Once again, I've been in the process of losing weight. And you're going to get tired of this. If I preach here 20 years, the only time that I'm not going to mention losing weight is somebody might not mention it at my funeral. I'm going to be mentioning it because it's something I always have to work on. And I got this little app on my phone and it tells me how many calories I've been eating. And when I put in what the foods are, it tells me how many calories it is. It's a disgusting thing. Don't put it on your phone, okay? And I was looking at it and I began to realize how many calories I was eating. And so after several days of really cutting back, I decided it was time again. You know, one of the basic food groups, chocolate. It had not been in my mouth for days. And I put the dark chocolate, ooh, 60% dark chocolate. Oh, so good. Dove, just in case you wanted to know, okay? And I put that little 55 calories on my tongue. And the chocolate dwelt in me richly. I savored it. Instead of just popping them like candy that they are, I, I savored it. Let the Word of God, let the Word of Christ be savored in your life. It's the discipline of directed thinking is what we're talking about. It's, it's saying that I'm going to direct my thinking. It's a discipline and I'm going to train my mind and I'm going to make the mental ascent. I'm going to set my mind. Number two, I'm going to commit my way. Commit your way. You see, you can have that mental ascent, but then there's that inner decision. You're standing there, you're in the boat, and, and the, the others are seated maybe around you, and you say, Lord, if it's you, and he says, if it's you, just tell me to come. And the Lord doesn't say, Peter, you know it's me. He doesn't argue with him. He doesn't elaborate. What does he say? Come. You see, you have to make a decision of the will. More than just the mental ascent, somewhere along the line, you have to, you have to take that foot and, and you have to say, well, I wonder what happens if, I, if I'm sitting on the gunwale. What, what, what happens if, I, if I'm sitting on the side of the boat? What happens if I, if I just throw that foot? What's going to happen? I, I, you can think all you want, but somehow, sometime, you have to throw your foot over the side of the boat and you have to decide to get out. It's not enough to just think it up here. The Lord says, come. Come. Psalm 37.5 says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will do this. It's faith in action. It's the step that gets us out of the boat. Did you ever wonder what the other disciples thought? There's 12 of them there. It's not just Peter. There's 12 disciples and 11 of them are lining the side of the boat. And Peter's saying, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come walk on the water to you. And if I'm John, I'm thinking, there's Peter again, running his mouth. All talk, no walk. But what do you think when he, when he leans up against the boat and he throws that leg out? What are you, what are you thinking? 
What are you thinking if you're James? What are you thinking if you're one of these other guys that's been watching Peter and you see him throw the foot out and you see, and instead of going down in the water, it holds and the other foot comes out and it holds and Peter's standing there for a minute. Can you imagine the boat's going like this and Peter's going, this is cool. If we had wood on the bottom and a rope tow, oh no, that's skiing, that's a different thing. Peter has made a decision and he's put it into action. What's your boat? What is it that you're sitting in that you don't get out into the storm? What is it that you're afraid of that keeps you like the 11 disciples? Who failed that day? Did Peter sink in the water? Absolutely. Who failed? The 11 disciples who never got out of the boat. Peter walked on water. The 11 disciples, they were still sitting in the boat. Peter is the only one that when we get to heaven, I'm going to go to Peter and I'm going to say, what was it like walking on the water? The other disciples, they can't give me the answer because they never got out of the boat. You have to commit your way. You have to put your foot out of the boat. What's your boat? It's whatever is keeping you so comfortable, you won't give it up to the Lord. It's whatever it is that is keeping you bound so you won't take that step of faith to get out of the boat. John Ortberg points out, if you don't get out of the boat, there's a guaranteed certainty you'll never walk on water. We were made for more than dodging impossible challenges, more than a comfortable, routine existence. Do you get that? We're made for much more than dodging impossibilities, more than just that comfortable, routine existence. We were made to abandon ourselves to the high adventure of following God. If you walk on, want to walk on water, John Ortberg says, you have to get out of the boat. Can I point out one other thing? Jesus wasn't in the boat. So many times I think we pray, Lord, here's my boat. Come join me in the boat. And the Lord says, I don't want to be in the boat. I want to be walking on water, and I want you walking with me. Come. Get out of the boat. Set your mind. Commit your way and set your heart. You see, it's not enough to make an intellectual decision and make this decision of the will, of the volition, and follow up with action. You still have to align your heart because if not, your heart, those emotions will overwhelm you just like they did Peter, because he had done the right thing. He finally got his mind straight and said, if it's you, and the Lord says, come, and he says, I'm there. And he threw his foot over, and he walked on water, and then the wind and the waves, and he, 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 he got his eyes off of that. But more than anything, I think it was his heart. He had not given his heart to the Lord and said, Lord, I, I know I'm going to be fearful. I know I'm going to be afraid. I want you to take the fear away or at least overwhelm it with your goodness. Colossians 3, 1 says it this way. Look at what it says. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It's not just enough to set your mind. You have to set your heart. And in fact, Colossians puts it as the first thing. We always use the terminology. I had my heart set on that pie. I had my heart set on that car. I had my heart set on that volition, that job, that 
that career. I had my heart set on that. We use that terminology all the time. And if somebody does something halfway, we say they were half-hearted about it. The Lord says, I want all of your heart. He started strong. He was distracted by fear. And every time we stretch our faith, the fear, the wind, the waves, the rain will distract us. And when we talk about setting our heart, we need to understand that there's only one direction to look. The psychologists will tell you, look inside. The opportunist will say, look around. The optimist says, just look ahead. Don't worry about today, just look ahead. The pessimist says, look out. And the Lord says, look at me. The writer of Hebrews says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, the one who's going to complete our faith, the one who's going to, to help us when we need him. Set your sights, put your aim on Jesus Christ. Hebrews 2.1 says, we must pay more careful attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away. G. Campbell Morgan one time was preaching to a congregation. They'd been through all kinds of things. They were in the midst of, uh, he'd, he'd gone through a period of the tit- sinking of the Titanic, World War I, the Second World War, to, during all of that time. And in the midst of one of the Great Depressions and one of the worst times in history, he preached a message called the Fixed Heart. This is what he says, men who are strong are always men who are fixed somewhere, who have a conviction from which they cannot be separated by argument, which cannot be changed. Whatever the circumstances in which they live, Sometimes these, men, sometimes these men are very narrow-minded, but they are wonderfully strong. They are singularly obstinate. They are splendidly dependable. We always know where to find these men because their heart is fixed. The fixed heart is the secret of courage. Courage is an affair of the heart. Courage is the consciousness of a heart that is fixed on Jesus Christ. Only Peter knew the thrill of walking on the water, of being lifted up by Jesus. I, I, I want to ask those two questions again. What's your storm? What is the storm that, that has come into your life? What is it that, is, that has just knocked you off of your, your center, your equilibrium? What is that storm? Number, number two, what's your boat? What is it that's gotten you so comfortable that you won't get out of the boat and, and walk with the Lord? What is it? In uh, 2007, September of 2007, September 9th, in fact, a young man by the name of Kevin Everett was playing in a football game. He went in for a routine tackle, and he was a tight end, but he was in, I think, on special teams that particular day, and he hit a man. Looked like a good hit. Didn't look like a big deal at all. Played for the Buffalo Bills. From the moment that his head hit that other man, he went down on the ground. You know, sometimes those players, they give a thumbs up. He didn't give any thumbs anywhere. He couldn't move his legs. He couldn't move his hands. He couldn't move anything from his neck down. They later found out that it was a, a horrible, horrible shattering of his third and fourth vertebra. In fact, the, the surgeon came out four hours after this, and these are his exact words. This is a potentially life-threatening injury. It's catastrophic spinal cord injury. And this is what he said. Kevin will never walk again. He will never walk again. He said, with an injury this huge, there's no way. It's impossible. 
Over the next two weeks, Kevin Everett battled blood clots. He had infection. He suffered respiratory failure. Four different times they had to put him on a respirator. He couldn't even breathe. He lost all, all function in his lungs. That was September 9th, 2007. Kevin Everett is a Christian. He asked his mother to pray for him. He asked his church to pray for him. He asked his fiance to pray for him. And he just turned himself over to the Lord. On February 1st, 2008, again, get this from September 9th to February 1st. On February 1st, 2008, Kevin Everett walked onto the set of Good Morning America, talked with Robin Roberts. He'd written a new book called Standing Tall. And she said, uh, Kevin, I want to talk about your surgeon. He said, I want to talk about my Savior. She said, Kevin, I want to talk about your rehab. And he said, I want to talk about the miracle to do the impossible, what God did in my life. He said, he saved my life. Quote, I see this as a blessing from God. This accident was not an accident. It was my storm. I prayed every day my heart would be fixed on what God wanted in my life. If I was to be a quadriplegic, so be it. But I was going to be God's quadriplegic. And he said, and he quoted this on Good Morning America. They edited most of it out. But this is what he quoted in Lamentations 3, 1 through 6. He says, this was my life. I am the man who's seen affliction. He's made my skin and my flesh grow old and he's broken my bones. He has besieged me, surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. Oh Lord, shall I live? He said, that's what I thought. But he said, I had to have somebody hold the Bible for me. As they flipped me over, they would put a Bible underneath and I would have them flip the page. And I said, don't stay there in Lamentations. Flip the page because in Lamentations 3.22 and 3.24, he said, this is where I lived. I lived each day clinging to this. Because of the Lord's great love, I am not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. And three weeks after a doctor said, Kevin will never walk again, he got feeling back in his feet and his hands. He had a huge, huge task of rehab. Don't get me wrong, Kevin Everett, they said, has worked harder than anybody because he not only had the mental ascent and he set his, and, and he committed himself volitionary, volitionally, but he also had a heart. He ran across a saying and he asked his fiance to put it up on a big banner and they put it across his room and this is what it says. Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. He said, every morning when I looked up, I saw that. He said, a Christian by the name of Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote that. Faith is a footbridge you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. What's your storm? What's your boat? Isn't it time you got out of the boat and walked? Let's pray. What an awesome God you are, Father. We can be fearless not because of something we can do, but because of what you can do in us. And the truth is, Father, spiritually, we're just as broken as Kevin Everett. We are helpless. We're quadriplegic spiritually. We need you, Father. We need you to empower us, to give us life. And then we need you to set our mind on you daily, to commit, uh, take this commitment of our way to you. 
We need you, Father, because of your grace, because of your mercy, to set our heart fixed on Jesus Christ. So do that today, Father, for us. Father, if there's one here today that has a spiritual need, may you speak to their heart. May they come. May they truly put it at the foot of the cross. Give it to you. Because that's where you make ashes into something beautiful. Father, it's only because of your mercies that we're new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Thank you for those new mercies every day. The life that you've given us. As we sing this, Father, may it be a prayer from our heart. Because you are awesome. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.